Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Autumn Semester 2023. Today, special topics continued. I will go through this. Uh, what I didn't do on Thursday, or rather on Monday, and uh, then we will have a surprise quiz for the remainder of the time together, and then you're done for the day. And then next week, on Monday again, that's a Zoom uh, session, first uh, day of review, and the first day I'll lay out for you on the Zoom session, the structure of the final. And then I'll go through some of the details. I'll focus more on Monday on definitions, concepts, and go through a few of uh, some of those terms. If you want to ask me, can you give me a definition of this or that? I can do that, as long as you don't go like 10 or more definitions. But that will be Monday, a Zoom session. The link will be in your uh, Canvas for that session. So, uh, and it will start at regular class time and go as long as you have questions. Uh, real quick here, a quick, uh, just a brief look at the numbers. Uh, it wasn't a spectacular day at all. As you can see, it was a, a, an utterly uninspiring day. The Dow, oddly enough, was up four hundredths of a percent, and then the S&P 500 was down nine hundredths of a percent, and the NASDAQ was down a little more at sixteen hundredths of a percent. Nothing really that's trivial. That's basically a flat uh, day. Uh, but uh, and you'll see that that was actually kind of globally what was going on. The an important part of that is that we now have the data as of today that inflation has been brought under control. It is coming down. It is going to uh, not be the job of the Fed to raise the discount rate anymore no longer slowing, trying to slow down the uh, economy by draining liquidity. Well, you would think that would make uh, the markets happy. Yay, interest rates going down. Well, why didn't the markets react that way? It's because they already knew that this was what was going to happen. The expectation had already been impounded in uh, securities prices a few days before, previously. So there was no new expectations formed today, uh, so there wasn't really any reason for the markets to move very much today. Just a quiet day. Now, crude oil is still in its trading band, 72 to 79. It did come up. It had kind of a wild day. It went up and then down and then up, and fortunately it leveled off there at the end of the day. So it's still in that 72 to 79 trading band, but it seems to be kind of volatile right now with lots of rumors uh, flying around as always is the case. The traders are reacting to the best guesses they have of what's about to come about. 
but there's not really any thought that there's going to be a, any supply disruptions from the Middle East or from Eastern Europe. But still, the rumors are there. Now over here, the odd thing was gold was roaring its way. It had completely broken through that $2,000 per ounce resistance level, and it was on its way up. And then there at the last, it began to drop hard as you can see. And it seems uh, in the aftermarket, it's still pulling downward. So the gold uh, bugs were excited because they thought there was some reason to see the end of the world coming. So they were buying their gold, but something cooled them off there by the end of the day today. So that's good news. They'll be quiet, we hope. Now the 10-year bond drop. The yield is going down. It went down Let's see if I can read that. About six and a half basis points. Interest rates, the discount rates going down. Interest rates in general are going to go down. It's not going to be a spectacular drop. The interest rates that we had there for oh, four or five years, they are no longer going to happen. Not for a long, long time. However, at least they're easing up from where they were uh, even a few months ago, home mortgage rates are sliding. They're still ri ridiculously high compared to what they were a few years ago. But, and you're even seeing auto loans, uh, the interest rate coming down. But still, I saw, uh, I got an ad from one of the major dealer, uh, major uh, auto companies a couple of, uh, about a month ago, 11.99% financing. Wow, isn't that incredible? Geez, that's an awful, an awful interest rate. Well, I just got an ad yesterday. New interest rates now for six-year loans are 10.49%. Yes, that's a drop, but that's still a very high interest rate for an auto loan, historically speaking. So we're, we are getting the interest rates down. That's going to keep the economy on the expansion path. We're coming, we're moving from a uh, recovery toward an expansion. More good news was that the numbers are coming in on Black Friday and uh, sales were record. They, it was record sales. So clearly consumer confidence is high enough that people are opening their wallets to buy for the Christmas season for gifts. And that's always good news. Consumer confidence goes up, buying goes up, more jobs, more production, the whole nine yards. Great news. Okay, now oddly enough, the euro and the pound both just wobbled. It looks like it was down a little bit, but not much. Well, if our interest rates are going down, that should weaken the dollar and that should cause other currencies to appreciate against the dollar. So why isn't that happening here? Most likely it's just because the, their interest rates are easing up too, and so there's, it's kind of a wash right now. The euro was pretty much flat, a little depreciation uh, dollar it had. The pound, just a barely a little bit, and the Japanese yen was about flat. So there you are. The whole, uh, and if you look over here, the Nikkei finished down a lousy little bit, about a quarter of a percent. Uh, 
no spectacular movements in there. And the Lo London was down a little more. And if you look, that's kind of the story over here. So in other words, the, glo the, the world's economies, or at least the financial markets, are in a wait-and-see attitude right now, just sort of sitting back. If you look at volume on Standard & Poor's 500, it's still pretty lousy against its 52-week uh, average, 3.4 billion shares today against 3.2.4 uh, billion shares today against 3.7 uh, on an average day over the past year. So there is still a lot of weakness in buying activity, especially by the big dogs. So there you are. There's where we're sitting. And you can look around at some of the markets. Show you one right now. I pulled up Bristol Myers here. Just as a show of where we could be over the next year or so. Now, Bristol Myers, as you can see, it's a very safe company. Beta is 0.37. Low risk investment. PE ratio at 12.37 indicates that it is undervalued possibly. It is a profitable company with $3.94 per share, and it pays a little bit of a dividend. So just to keep you in the mood of doing these, we'll look at the one-year holding period return on this company, and we would have in one year projected $57.70 against the purchase price one year earlier today, of about 48.72 and minus one and then you take the result times a hundred your cap well let's try that one more time <laughs> uh, 57 70 divided by the current price 48 one year earlier 48.72 minus one so the capital gain yield is 18%. Now, if you add in the dividend yield, 4.66%, look at that. Oops. I got to multiply that by 100 first. And then add the 4. Um, 4. What was it? 4.66? A total holding period, one-year holding period return of 23.09%. And this is on a really low beta stock. So this gives you an indication that, doing some more research, obviously, but it looks like this is a definite buy, a good, play, a good stock to have in a well-diversified portfolio. With a beta that low, and returning 23.09% annual, you can't beat that. Bristol Myers is one of those old stable companies that sells basic products and all that. So even if the economy went to hell, it's not gonna go down that much, but it looks like you, I mean, that's a heck of a winner for, at that low risk level, and it's undervalued right now, so this would be a good time to buy it. So, as I've always said, of course, don't trust my in, anything I tell you as far as investments go, because I wouldn't be giving investment advice 
if I were still, if I, I wouldn't be good at this, if I were good at this, I wouldn't be here. Anyway, enough of that. Let me tell you, I'm going to finish up. I'm not going to do the second topic. I'm just going to finish up the Federal Reserve today. Make sure you've got all that down. Now, be sure at least listen, watch that video that I gave, uh, I gave you the link to that video on. Uh, it's called In Plain English. It's about the operations of the Federal Reserve. That goes through the whole thing pretty well. But just to remind you, I had one tale that I hadn't shown you. This was. Um, Remember, the tools of monetary policy. Well, first of all, duties of the Fed, just to get a running start. Duties of the Fed. Well, the first duty was that it regulates and supervises the banks. The governors regulate, and the district banks supervise the banks. Two, the Fed serves as a bank for banks. And the third one was the one where I cut off near the end, conducts monetary policy. This is the big one. Now I gave you the three different tools. The least used would be the required reserve ratio, sometimes called the fractional reserve ratio. And this I gave you last time. Like I said, I'm just getting a running start. The second tool to conduct monetary policy would be the discount rate. Now that's a rate at which the Fed would lend money to banks. If your bank needs $10 million, the Fed will lend it to you. And it will charge you this rate that it sets. This discount rate is set by the Fed. It also serves as a signal that, well, Okay, the Federal Reserve raised the discount rate by, 0.2, uh, by 25 basis points, 0.25%. Well, that would mean that the Fed is saying that it wants the economy to slow down. So it wants interest rates to go up. And, or the Fed lowered the discount rate. That would mean that the Fed thinks the economy is going a little too slowly, so it wants to juice the economy a little bit. It wants lower interest rates. Now, what's the expectation now? The Fed had been one, every meeting, it was raising the discount rate. Up, 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 signaling slow down economy, we've got to kill inflation. But now, we are pretty much assured that the Fed may actually be completely finished with those incremental increases in the discount rate. That's good news, that's great news. Happy news. Okay. Good news. Now, however, banks don't have to go to the discount window at the Fed. They can borrow from each other in the federal funds market, and they will pay the federal funds rate. 
This is not set by the Fed. It's set by the supply of money and demand for money in this vast pool of bank funds. So it is set by market forces. However, the Fed will give a target what it wants it to be. And the Fed has this last tool that I'm going to tell you about that it uses to push that federal funds rate to where they want it. Now, again, just to emphasize this, the federal funds market is this vast pool of the money of banks. That's kind of oversimplifying it, but it does it pretty well. So there's this ginormous pool of trillions of dollars. This is the federal funds market. And it's just all this money that's swirling in the banking system. Now, it's, it might sound kind of paradoxical. It's very real, but it's kind of diffuse. It's sort of like air. Well, we know it's there, but it's here, here, it's all, it's everywhere. And for the Fed to add money to it or drain money from it, it's sort of like, breathe, blow it over here. That's kind of what the Fed does with this last operation that it does. It's called open market operations. OMOs. Now I'm going to juice your thinking a little bit here, just for a minute. Uh, believe it or not, you're going to be the leaders of the free world someday. Pretty much every one of you. You're going to know things that hardly anyone else knows. Some people just don't want to know this. Some people can't understand it. But that's where we come in. We know about this. These open market operations are to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars every day, swirling back and forth through the economy, through the banks, even through our own bank accounts, and hardly anyone knows this is happening. And it is the force that is maintaining control of the economy in the short run. So you're going to know about something, even to try to explain it. You might get someone to kind of get how they work, but would they know how incredibly forceful this is? Probably not. So that's where we come in. We have to know this. We have to understand it because we are the ones who will be trying to know what it's going to do to our companies, know what it's going to do to the economy, and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Now I'm going to take go away from the federal funds market here for a minute. And I'm going to give you a, one last part about the Federal Reserve. Now the Federal Reserve 
Remember, there are seven governors and 12 district bank presidents. One of those districts is kind of more important than the other ones. It's the Empire Bank, the Federal District Bank of New York. It has kind of a pivotal role in the machinery that I'm going to show you here. But the Federal Reserve has a special committee. It's called the Federal Open Market Committee. The FOMC. In fact, that little cheesy animated video talks quite a bit about this. And they do a really good job, maybe even better than I do, because they just, it's kind of summary, but they got it. Okay. Now, the Federal Open Market Committee. All seven governors are on this committee, plus five district bank presidents. Four of those district bank presidents serve rotating two-year terms. Okay, so in other words, you're the uh, president of the District Bank of Atlanta, and you've just done your two years, so I'm the president of the District Bank of Cleveland. I may, might be the one. You're done with your term, and then I step in, and it's my turn to be one on the FOMC. And that rolls around. Now, there's one permanent member. That's the Empire Bank president. And there's a reason. That one is... There's a reason. That's the New York Fed uh, District Bank. That president is always going to be on the Federal Open Market Committee. He or she is going to be a fixed thing like the seven governors are. Now... These, this FOMC meets formally and officially eight times a year. And they make a decision. Are we going to add liquidity to the economy? Are we going to leave the liquidity growth rate alone? Or are we going to drain liquidity? They meet and they have this, they make this decision eight times a year. And they kind of hint at it even in that video. This is not a, oh, everyone agrees. It can get fierce in, that, uh, in those meetings. You have the inflation hawks, cut the money supply to zero. And you have the inflation doves, the economy needs help for God's sake, put some money into it. And 
It, as a matter of fact, just this week, that, that uh, disagreement has rolled out and two of the bank presidents are arguing in the news media, for God's sake. I mean, that's, you usually, they're quiet and, you know, they have their differences when the door is locked, but when they open the door, everyone's like, they're fighting it out, they're duking out with competing interviews in the news, in, on news sites now, which is, yeah, that's almost, that's a little bit, uh, crazy that it gets to that point. But there is often disagreement. You have those who want to cut the money supply because they're still afraid that inflation is, the embers are just waiting to burst back out. And then you have the other ones say enough is enough. We have raised the discount rate more times than we ever did in history. And the inflation numbers are dead. So why are we still trying to cut the money supply? So this is, they can get really uh, fierce. However, there's a vote. And once that vote is done, those 19 votes are counted, uh, I'm sorry, those uh, 12 votes are counted, and a decision is made. Now, if I understand, if I remember it right, if it's a 50-50 vote, the chairman uh, decides who's going to go. Okay, so whatever they decide, the district bank president of the Empire Bank sends a message to the Empire Bank in New York. And the message he sends, or she sends, goes to what is called the domestic trading desk. The domestic trading desk, the DTD, is in the Empire Bank. It's there. That's why that one is more important than the others, because whatever the Fed decides at the FOMC meeting, it will be executed at the domestic trading desk in New York City. Now, this is not, when I say desk, the word desk in corporate uh, in corporate and government lingo is not, a, you know, well, I got a nice desk right here. It, the desk is a, an official thing. And this desk has many, many, uh, I, I think hundreds of traders. The manager of the desk gets the message from the FOMC. Add liquidity or drain liquidity or leave the liquidity growth rate where it is, okay? That's what the domestic uh, trading desk does, is execute the orders of the FOMC conveyed to them through the Empire Bank president to the desk. Now, if you follow that, the rest of it's kind of just... That story of that swirling billions and billions of dollars every day, just like that all through the economy, this is where it's happening. Watch. Okay. I'm trying to think. Who looks like a desk trader? Oh, no, actually, some of you do. I could see you in New York City doing it. Let's say you. You're a desk trader. Now, the desk manager has given the orders. 
he or she got it from her boss, the New York bank president. Let's say drain liquidity from the economy. And that message is sent to all the traders. Do it. So here's how it works. You are a desk trader. In your desk are tons of dollar bills and tons of T-bills. Now, treasury bills and dollar bills are almost exactly the same except for one important feature. Both of them are highly liquid and highly safe. They are both good as gold to a certain extent. Here is your bank. A normal, happy bank. Right there. Now a bank will have in its vault dollars and T-bills. It's safest capital. Every bank has to have this super safe capital. And dollars and T-bills fill that need, fill that. Okay? So the bank has sort of a balance of dollars and T-bills, and those are tier one capital. What a bank has to have to show that it can stay in business. It has higher, it has other investments too, you know, like loans and stuff like that. But this is the super safe stuff the bank has. So you, the desk trader, knows that you need to get money away from that bank. Dollar bills. You need to drain liquidity. The way you drain it is to pull these dollar bills, which are part of the federal funds market. So what you're going to do is, I'm, I'm a bank president. You call me, ring, ring, yellow, Al's Bank, and all-you-can-eat uh, cheeseburger bar. May I help you? You say, hi, you're the desk trader. Hi, I want to sell you some T-bills. Oh, okay, I guess. So what you do is you then sell a T-bill to the bank and I, the bank president, send you a dollar, send you some dollars. You've just drained liquidity from the federal funds market. That's how it's done. Now, in, in a, a more advanced course, I mean, I go through these details of these bizarre ways that they pull this with T-bills, with repos and reverse repos and all this stuff. But it boils down to exactly this. This is how it's done. Every day, the desk traders are working the banks, following the orders of, their, of, the, de uh, of the domestic trading desk management, which got their orders from the Empire Bank president, who got his or her orders from the FOMC. So there's this chain, and it's like a machine. It's not like something, well, how do we do this today? It's, <coughs> it's so automatic anymore. It's just like pushing buttons. The bank, uh, you know, the Fed just pushes a button, and the bank buys a T-bill or something like that. But, so that's how you would drain liquidity. Now let's take it the opposite way.
it again. Now remember the trader has dollar bills and T-bills. The bank has dollar bills and T-bills. This time, your desk manager has said, add liquidity to the economy. Go, do it. So you call me up, ring, ring, hello. Al's Bank and Burrito House of Joy. And you say, wait a minute, weren't you something else? Cheeseburger? Uh, we'll change our menu. Okay, try to concentrate. Okay, here we go. So what you do is you say, I should like to buy some T-bills from you. Well, okay. So in this case, you send, they give up a T-bill and you send them money that goes into the federal funds market. That's how OMOs work. That's how the Fed, its main tool of monetary policy, day in, day out, flowing money back and forth, T-bills back and forth, exchanging them like this. And on balance, and interestingly enough, you might want to add liquidity to the economy, but you know what? You might once in a while sell a T-bill to a bank. Well, wouldn't that take money out of the economy? Yes, but it would also confuse the speculators who were trying to bet on which way interest rates were going to go. Because if you pull the rug out from under them by draining, that would cause interest rates to go up. I was expecting you to add liquidity, which would make more money, and therefore interest rates in the federal funds market would go down. So I would be speculating, thinking I knew what you were going to do, but you might do the opposite just to knock me out of the game for a minute. It happens. That's why right now you'll see, well, if the Fed is going to hold the money, you know, not going to do anything, why do we see, there's, I, could, I, I can't pull it up right now, but there, is actually, there are actually places where you can see green arrow, add liquidity, red arrow, drain liquidity. You can see times when you know damn well the Fed is draining liquidity, but you'll see a green arrow. Well, what the heck? Why are they doing that? Because they're bluffing the traders. The traders think that they're draining liquidity, which would cause federal funds rate to go up, other interest rates to go up. But if you add liquidity, it'll cause interest rates to turn the other way, and it'll pull the rug out from under the speculators. It's something that happens. There's a lot of gamesmanship in this, a lot. Uh, I get confused. Some of it's really complex strategies and all that. But anyway, that's the basic outline of how the uh, Federal Reserve uses. These are, again, open market operations, OMOs. They're done every day, just billions and billions of dollars every day flowing through the banking system flowing through the economy in this, these vast airwaves that almost no one knows are happening, and yet they are affecting our companies, our lives, our economy, and our nation. Most people don't have any idea that that's going on. Now, one last thing I want to tell you about. Just a little uh, kind of side part to this. When I say money, 
Money is a little bit more complicated than one might think. There are actually different monetary aggregates, and we divide them up based upon liquidity. The first level, which almost no one talks about anymore, but it's really there, is this M sub zero. This is just the cash and currency in the economy. Dollars and cents in the economy. The amount of just pure money that people think of as money. Uh, um, I think they call this some, some, it used to be called the base, the base money supply. Just what people think money is. Now, the one that you usually see mentioned first, though, is M1. This is the cash and currency, M0, plus demand deposits. In other words, checking accounts at real banks. Because that's pretty liquid. I mean, it's almost as good as money, a debit card and all that. There, there's also a third one in there. I don't even write it up on the board anymore. Another kind of very, very liquid money. But I haven't heard anyone use it in years. Have any of you ever heard of traveler's checks? Okay. And don't leave home without them. They used to be a really big thing. Because you could get it, you could, if you were going overseas, you turn your, say, thousand dollars into a thousand travelers checks and they were accepted all over the world instantly and if you lost them or they were stolen then you were reimbursed very very quickly so they are technically still part of m1 even though they're hardly ever used have any of you used travelers checks ever uh, I, like i said you know i don't even write it up there but it is part of m1 Okay, let me do this. Okay, the next one is M2. Now remember, as so I'm going down, I'm going into more illiquid stuff. More stuff that's not easily converted to another asset. M2. That's M1 plus negotiable order of withdrawal accounts plus small time deposits. Now, I mentioned this earlier in the course. Now accounts are checking accounts at credit unions. That's mostly what they are. They actually look like checks. They're mostly honored like checks. But technically, a check from a credit union doesn't have to be cashed by the credit union immediately. Now, if you go in there with, someone's written you a, uh, a check on a credit union for $100, they'll say, well, yes, just ID, here it is. But if you brought in a check for, let's say, $10,000 that was written on a credit union and someone who had that credit union account wrote you that check, you go to a credit union, they don't have to give you that $10,000 on demand. They could tell you you have to wait. So in other words, that perfect liquidity isn't there. That's why now accounts are put in M2. Now, small time deposits. And forgive me if I don't know the exact amount, 
But I think it's any CD certificate of deposit or something like that that is for $50 million or less. So in other words, small <laughs> time deposit. Because, I mean, you can't, if you got a CD, you try to, uh, I want to turn that into cash, they'll charge you a substantial interest penalty for early withdrawal. You know, you'll get burned. So in other words, it's not highly liquid. That's why it's an M2. Now, the last one is M3. This is M2 plus large time deposits. These insanely huge things we'll never see. Plus Euro money. Now, when I say euro dollars, I am referring to American money in the central banks of foreign countries. When you buy a Chinese toaster for $20, that $20 turns into foreign reserve money. That country has to use that money back here in the United States. It's highly illiquid, but it is vast. It is a huge pool. You buy a barrel of oil for $77, well, that's going to go maybe to some Arab country like Saudi Arabia, and that's that what the oil producing company will get the Riyadh equivalent of the $70, and that money in dollars, that $70, is then in the central bank of that country. Those are called petrodollars, by the way. But it's, uh, I use the general generic term euro money or euro dollars. Highly illiquid. Let me show you one last thing. About the crisis of 2008, the Fed's job is to control the growth of the money supply so that it matches the real growth rate of the economy. Now, some years ago, I was uh, one of the relatively popular bloggers on financial and economic uh, news on the internet. And uh, at that time, in 2000, about, starting in about 2006, 2005, I was writing articles warning that something very bad was going to happen to the economy. Because the Federal Reserve, here's what was happening. M3 was out of control. The Fed can't control it. That's just people buying and companies buying foreign stuff and putting and sending our dollars to their central banks. So this thing was spiraling out of control. It was so bad the Fed stopped publishing M3 in 2006. They were so freaked out, they didn't want everyone f going crazy about how insane the growth rate of M3 was. And it was all because of the euro dollars, the money in other foreign banks, because we were buying foreign cars, foreign oil, we were buying everything, so M3 was skyrocketing. Even M2 was getting ridiculous. So how did the Fed deal with it? They cut the growth rate of M1 
the money that households and businesses use every day. They cut the growth rate of it down to zero. So in other words, the economy was cruising along at about 2.5%, just like a car driving along at 25 miles an hour. And then all of a sudden, the liquidity, the M1, was cut to zero growth rate. And of course, by the September 15th, the economy collapsed. It just buckled. The entire banking system just buckled. That was what caused the Great Recession. There are all of these talking heads that talk, well, it was the housing market bubble, some bubble crap again. Or we were giving uh, home loans to high-risk people. How dare those poor people want to live in a house they own? All kinds of excuses. You look right here. There it was. The growth rate of the money supply had been cut, of the M1 had been cut to zero, even though the economy was growing. It didn't have enough lubrication but liquidity to do that, and finally it, cra it cracked. And on September the 15th of 2008, we came within two hours, and I'll tell you about that maybe next week if I have a minute. We came within two hours of a financial apocalypse of the entire world. ATMs wouldn't work. You couldn't get your money out of banks because they had no money to give. It was nearly a disaster. It was enough of a disaster because we had this led to the greatest, the worst recession since the Great Depression. And the Fed has quietly made sure that hardly anyone knows that it was their inappropriate reaction to the growth rate of M3 by using M1 to try to drag it down that caused it to happen. Notice that when the growth rate of M1 was above zero, that was, it, the M3 was still skyrocketing. So by cutting M1 down to zero, they were barely denting M3's rise, rapid growth rate. That's how it worked. Anyway, you have a quiz to take. And then that, once you finish that, that'll be all I have for you today. And I thank you.